the king was to put himself in a circle of people that most would not think was good. Um, uh, Caesar in Rome, Herod in Galilee were both really awful examples of what it meant to be a king or what it meant to have a kingdom. Uh, and so these things kind of throw us. Tyrants typically tell you what to do and they don't care what you think. Um, a tyrant leads for the sake of the tyrant. Um, we're suspicious of that kind of authority today because, well, first, because everyone on the other side of the political aisle are tyrants, okay? And it doesn't matter which side of the aisle you're on. You think that everyone on the other side of the aisle are tyrants, right? They have ideas, they want to push, they, they abuse their authority, and they serve themselves and their campaign contributors, Okay? That's the accusation made no matter which side of the aisle you're on. And that's one reason we're suspicious is because we have good reason to be suspicious. All kinds of authorities from presidents, both past and present, um, to governors, to state assembly people, to congress people, to senators, right? Everybody, we, we get news stories that basically show us that these folks are in power for themselves, right? And so we're taught to mistrust authority. We're taught that with authority comes tyranny, but it's also, we think this way, because even with Christianity, the way that the church often talks about God's kingship can also feel tyrannical. How many times have you maybe said to someone else or heard someone else say, look, I don't care what you say, you're wrong. And frankly, God doesn't care what you say. You just need to obey him and do what he says. So this is why a lot of people think when we talk about the kingship of Jesus or the authority of God, they think that God is a tyrant. And so it's into this conversation that Mark steps in. It's into this conversation that Mark sort of jumps in and goes, hey, 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 wait, 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 wait. You, you got it all wrong. You're wrong about, you haven't heard what God is really like. Let me tell you about Jesus. Mark says, look, I've got to tell you that God's authority is nothing like the way that humans abuse it. It's nothing like that. And if you can see the kind of leader Jesus is, you will agree with me that he is a revolutionary king. He is so different from Caesar. He is so different from Herod. He is so different from politicians today. And so we think about tyranny, and Mark would say, I get it, but you've got to see Jesus. Let me show you what Jesus is like. And so that's why we have Mark chapter 5. And if you have your Bibles, that's where I want you to turn today, to Mark chapter 5. Um, it's also in your bulletin. So if you want to open up your bulletin, you can see there. There's actually no room to take notes today. So this is going to be so clear and so memorable that you won't even need to write anything down. Um, no, there's space there on the, uh, on the other side, or you can take notes on the front cover today. Okay? Um, I just didn't want you to miss any of what Mark presents as the revolutionary of King, as the revolutionary King Jesus. Um, this is a report of three people who encounter Jesus and they see the revolutionary King that he is. And so what we're gonna see today, this is our next slide, is that Jesus brings a revolution of kingly care. That's what we're gonna see. Jesus brings a revolution of kingly care. And so let's read God's word together here in Mark 5, starting with verse 1. They, this is Jesus and his disciples, came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. 
And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he, Jesus, was saying to him, the man who was demon-possessed, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. And so he gave them permission And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened, and they came to see Jesus. They came to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him, and he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim it in the Decapolis, how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I'll be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling 
and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Friends, this is God's word. So here we see three people. Three people, the demon-possessed man, the, the, the ruler of the synagogue, and this poor woman. The, these three people who couldn't be more different. Okay, in verse 1, he's, this man is demon-possessed. He's also from the country of the Gerasenes. This is in the land of the Gentiles, where the Jews don't live. This is Jesus outside the promised land. Okay, so he is outside the promised land in the Gentile country of the Gerasenes, not looking for Jesus. Okay, then verse 22, we see a Jewish man. This was a, a man who was of high standing. He was a ruler of the synagogue. Okay, do you see it says that there? He was a religious leader of high standing who came to Jesus openly. And then verse 25, we see a poor Jewish woman who came to Jesus in secret. They're so different. They're so different, but people from all walks of life were attracted to Jesus in his day. Um, they were attracted to who he was and what he did for people. And so they're so different, but they all have something in common. Uh, their problems were hopeless. Look at verse 2. This man with an unclean spirit, verse 3, he lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. He'd often been bound with shackles and chains, but wrenched the chains apart, broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Verse 22, one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. And then verse 25, this woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years had suffered much under many physicians, spent all that she had and was no better but grew worse. And then Jairus' problem interrupted by this woman, it becomes even worse in verse 35 when he finds out that his daughter was dead. So these three people all have problems that are hopeless. And I want you to notice in this passage the way that the people around them responded to their problems. Okay, we've got to notice this because it will help us understand the difference that Jesus makes. So with the demon-possessed man, the people in his community, what did they do? 
they tried to tie him up with chains and shackles. Um, they isolated him out into the place of the dead. Um, one commentator that I read said this. He said, the world's method for dealing with Satan is to further bind his victims. And when those restrictions aren't helping, they simply isolate the person. With the woman who had a discharge of blood, uh, this was probably a menstrual issue that was incessant and debilitating, but not fatal, right? Because she had this for 12 years. Um, and the fact that she's coming in secret, right? She's hiding herself in the crowd. It shows that she's been ostracized by the community. She's not welcome. Because um, in those days, a flow of blood like this would have made somebody ceremonially unclean. Like she would have been considered defiled. And if anybody were to touch her, they would have become defiled. They would have become unclean. And so people communicated pretty clearly to her that she didn't belong in the community. She didn't belong around. She needed to stay away. This is why she came in fear. And then with Jairus, the community around him, the people around him all gave up hope and told him to give up in verse 35, right? She's dead. Why trouble the teacher anymore? So we have isolation, restriction, shame, ostracizing, giving up on people. These are things that we can do as people to hurt others. These are ways that sometimes we respond to the problems that other people have in our lives. And when we do these things, what we're actually doing is we're misusing the authority that God has given us. We might not be full-blown tyrants because we don't have that much authority, but we can, we can abuse people and hurt people um, by using our authority to serve ourselves and we cut other people out of our lives. This happens in relationships, in friendships, in dating, in marriage. It happens in families. It happens in the workplace. And in these ways, we fail people who are suffering. We leave them high and dry. We have power that God has given us, and we misuse that power. Now, I know there are some situations where you hear this and you think, well, wait, I just don't know what else I can do. Right? There's nothing else that I could do in this situation. Well, I would say that you need to bring these people then to Jesus. You need to bring them to Jesus. In each of these situations, the reaction of the community, it's somewhat understandable. Like we can understand why they've reacted this way. But when the community gives up on someone, Jesus' response is in verse 36. Jesus says, don't fear, only believe. That's what he says to us. And so I want you to see now how Jesus comes to these three people with a kingly care that starts a revolution. Okay? Let's look first at this man who's possessed by the demon. <laughs> with this man, um, who is not bound anymore, but is, is free and roaming and is really killing, he, he's being killed by this power that's in him. Now, this, like in this, we see that Jesus has incredible power over the demonic realm. Okay, 
the demons are powerful, and yet Jesus is even more powerful. Now, back then, this was extreme, just as it is today. And, and the conversation between Jesus and this demon-possessed man, or between Jesus and the demons themselves, uh, admittedly, it's cryptic, it's strange. Um, the idea of demon possession, I think, reflects a worldview um, that life is spiritual, and not all the spiritual powers that exist in, in life are good. Uh, God is good, but there is a devil, and the devil has followers who are seeking to take power and to take power over people. Um, in this vein, you need to understand that temptation isn't just some thought that you ought to do something wrong. Okay? Temptation is actually a proposition to believe the devil's gospel. Okay, that's what temptation is. It's a proposition to you to believe the devil's gospel. What is the devil's gospel? The devil's gospel is basically, look, you need to look out for yourself. Put yourself first and you will be happy. That's the message that the devil tries to convince us of. And frankly, that's the idea of serving yourself. Like that is the gospel of the devil. He doesn't need you to worship him. He just needs you to worship yourself. Anything that you worship that's not God, he wins. And I think this kind of temptation, the, the temptation to serve ourselves, I mean, this is really at the core of bad leadership today. Like, that's what produces all forms of tyranny. And when we give ourselves into temptation, we run the risk of giving allegiance to sin and to the devil. That's the risk that we run. And when people do that, the tempter can take more and more control over a person's life. Now, that's what happened to this man. And he was possessed not just by one demon, but when Jesus asks him for his name, he says in verse 9, you see, Jesus says, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Back then, a legion in the Roman army numbered about 6,000. Um, so 6,000 soldiers and whether it's, the commentators say that most legions weren't full legions, and so they had anywhere between like 2,500 and 5,000 troops, but still a huge number. But that 2,500 number sounds like it matches with the number of pigs. And, you know, whether each of the demons went in with one of the pigs, like you just see, um, but either way, 2,000 demons, my God, right? I mean, this is not a good situation. Um, and so this man has been taken over by the power of these demons. Um, as a bit of, gr of grammar that I think is significant, for those of you who want to go a little bit deeper, um, in verse 2, it says, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Actually, um, in the Greek, the language says, there met him out of the tombs a man in an unclean spirit. And so the idea here is that there is sort of a realm that you can be in. And this man was living in the realm that was controlled by these evil spirits. Okay? That's significant, especially when you think about the reality that we are filled with the Spirit, right? That we are in the Holy Spirit as Christians, right? Well, this man was in an unclean spirit. He's under the dominion of this legion of demons. And what we see here, when Jesus comes... When Jesus comes, he confronts this demonic horde, and Jesus' power and authority cares for this man 
and sets him free. And that's the bottom line of what happens here. Jesus cares for this man and sets him free. And this is kingly care that starts a revolution. Jesus meets us right where we are. Okay, no matter where you are, Jesus doesn't shy away from you. He doesn't shy away from anything that you are doing. He doesn't doesn't blush at the stuff that you're involved with. He comes to you where you are, as you are. He enters into our pain and our problems. And he sets us free. Verse 15, when the the crowd came and they saw the demon-possessed man, he was sitting there clothed and in his right mind. This is kingly care that revolutionizes a life. Then with this woman who, with the flow of blood, in verse 30, how did Jesus react to her? Verse 30 says, He perceived it in himself the power had gone out of him. He turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? The disciples are like, Really, Jesus? Seriously. Like, you're passing through this crowd like a horde, right? Where all the, the crowd's gathering around, and they're like, The crowds are everywhere. And I was thinking, meanwhile, while this conversation is going on between Jesus and, uh, and his disciples, and Jesus is looking for the woman, I mean, you see that, right? Um, in verse 32, it says, and he looked around to see who had done it, right? So there's this pause in the action, right? And meanwhile, Jairus is probably saying, look, Jesus, who cares? Who cares? My daughter's dying. Don't you care? Like, we're on our way. We're in a hurry here. We got to go, we got to go. What difference does it make if someone touched you? But this, friends, this is kingly care. This is Jesus who's not just concerned that someone has been healed, but this is Jesus who doesn't just want to heal this woman. He wants to restore her to community. This is a woman who came in secret because she knows if she gets caught, she's going to get ostracized. She's been ostracized before. And so Jesus exposes her in the middle of this crowd, not to shame her, but to declare to everyone that she has been healed. Do you see that? He wants everyone to know this is no longer a woman with the flow of blood for 12 years. But this woman has been healed. She is a daughter of the king. Verse 34, he says to her in front of everyone, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. You have my shalom. You have God's fully orbed peace. You are healed of your disease. This is kingly care that starts a revolution. And it's the power of Jesus' righteous life. I mean, her flow of blood should have made Jesus unclean. But when you come into contact with the man who is perfect, when you come into contact with Jesus who is God's king, the effects are reversed. Jesus' kingly care absorbs her uncleanness and makes her clean. And then with Jairus, right? This is a ruler of the synagogue. And it says when we meet him uh, in verse, uh, verse 22, it says, Jairus, by name, seeing him, fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying. Right? This reminds me, I don't know if it reminds you of chapter one. Do you remember when the leper 
came to Jesus, right? The leper comes. It says a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. And I just, I love this, that the, the way that the leper comes to Jesus is the exact same way that the ruler of the synagogue comes to Jesus, Right, that at the feet of the king, everyone is equal. Everyone needs to bow down to Jesus. We all need to honor him. We all need to humble ourselves and plead with him. Everyone is the same at the feet of Jesus. Well, then the ruler hears, right? He's frustrated. He's like, oh my God, we don't have much time. And then, and then the news comes. His daughter's dead. And, and you just wonder, right? He probably thought, like, if only that damn woman didn't come. You know, and he might have been felt awful for thinking it, but he thought it. Or have you ever felt that way? Like, God, why did my circumstances work out this way? And even though he hates himself, he thought this because now his daughter is dead. Dead. But not to Jesus. But not to Jesus. What does Jesus say in verse 36? Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. She was dead. But to Jesus, she was merely sleeping. Can you hear that today? She was dead, but to Jesus, she was merely sleeping. And so for us, even though we are dead in our sins, even though our sins cut us off from God so that our spiritual life apart from him is nil, Jesus can wake us up by calling us to believe in him. Jesus wakes us up by calling us to trust him. Jesus took her hand, verse 41, taking her by the hand, and he said to her, wake up. He didn't just say wake up. He said, little girl, I say to you, arise. Arise. And so she was raised physically. Physically, she's brought back from the dead. For us, in our case, Jesus took our sinful lives. Right? And he went to the cross. He died for us to raise us spiritually. Friends, this is kingly care that starts a revolution. And so this is, this is Mark chapter 5. Now, really, this is, this is one chapter. And, and as I was preparing this, I was thinking, man, this is amazing. Look at Jesus' care. It's powerful and it's personal. But then I thought, wait a second. I mean, for those of you who are exploring Christianity, for those of you who haven't read the end of the story or, or just sort of you're, you're focused in on this, I mean, you could say, yeah, but this is just one chapter. I mean, don't all kinds of politicians do this, right? Politicians, when they're on the campaign trail, like, they're always kissing babies, right? They're kissing babies, they're helping people, they're solving problems, man, and they're really just trying to get elected. But once they get elected, once they get the power, it's really all about them after all. Once they have power, then it turns into blessing their cronies, blessing their financial supporters, and the rest of us get left in the dust. Isn't that how it is? How do we know this isn't like Jesus? We're like 
the woman who, in another story that we're going to see, um, is just hoping to get the crumbs that fall off the table. I think this, um, this speaks to, like, like, the genuineness of Jesus, right? And I think we need to remember, and I need you to not forget, don't, remember, don't forget where the story's heading. Don't forget where the story is heading, because Jesus doesn't just set this demon-possessed man free. He doesn't just send these demons into pigs, But where this story is going is that we're going to see that Jesus actually takes the demonic powers and our sins onto himself when he goes to the cross and dies for the sin of the world. He doesn't just end this flow of blood for this woman, but he actually opens up his body and sheds his own blood so that she can be healed, not just physically, but eternally. He doesn't just raise this girl from death to life, but Jesus goes to the cross and offers himself in his own death so that she will be resurrected to eternal life. Friends, the rest of Jesus' life shows that this isn't just an act. This isn't just a power play. This isn't just a campaign trail. But Jesus has truly come to care for the world. Jesus gave his entire life to care for the world's deepest needs. This is why you should trust him. This is why you should follow him. Because when you believe in him, He cares for you this way. He cares for you like this. In his perfect life, he lived the righteous life you should have lived. In his death, he died for your sins. And in his resurrection, he declares to you that you are forgiven. All of your sins are paid for. Jesus adopts you into his own family so that you are included in the family of God. No matter what else happens, no matter who is against you, God is on your side. Jesus changes you by his own care. His care actually touches your heart and softens it. It replaces your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. His care makes you into a caring person. And his own presence dwells within you. Jesus gives you gifts to make you a gift to the world. This is the fullness of the good news. It's not just what Jesus did then, but it's what Jesus does for you. It's what he's done for you, what he does in you, and what he wants to do through you. And this is good news. That Jesus will end your suffering in the future, but he will change your heart now. He will love you perfectly. He'll make you perfect in the future, but he will cause you to grow now. We get to experience the benefits. To know Jesus makes you like Jesus. This is good news. Everything is different because of this. And I think the story, this chapter is aptly centered in verses 19 and 20. This demon-possessed man, as Jesus was leaving the town, um, the demon-possessed man begged Jesus that he might go with him, he might be with him. But verse 19, Jesus didn't permit him, 
but said, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Interesting, right? Jesus, I want to be with you. Jesus like, no. Sorry. I see this, I think being with Jesus means he wanted to be one of the 12. He wanted to be one of the disciples that was going to go with Jesus to Jerusalem in the great climax of his ministry, right? And Jesus says, no. So I think in, a, in some ways, like sometimes people feel like, well, wait, if Jesus had loved me this much, then the best way for me to love him back is to go to seminary and become a pastor, right? It's to join the church, get on staff, and really start living for Jesus. If you've ever felt that way, Jesus is telling you no. You don't have to do that. I've got something better for you. I want you to go home. Look what verse 19 says. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Friends, that is the mission for all of us. Jesus doesn't need all of us standing up here in a line, everybody ready to preach on Sundays. Right? We don't all need to do this. But there are people in your life. There are people in your home. There are people in your neighborhood. There are people in your workplace that so desperately need to see the love and the care of this king in your life. And they need to hear from you what the Lord has done for you so that they can know that this revolutionary king has started a revolution that has captured your heart that has changed you, that is working in you. And even if your circumstances never change and are awful till the day you die, you are not the same. You have been loved and cared for by King Jesus, who is just beginning to scratch the surface. You are just beginning to scratch the surface of his passionate love for you that will never end for all eternity. This is a revolutionary king. This is the revolution that we would be cared for by him so that we can take this revolution into our homes, into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces, so that we can care for others.